The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, right across from the one, the only, the beast with no yeast, Tammy, the Sasquatch Underwood. Say Gur Tam. Hi, everybody. What? <laughs> I knew I'd get a what out of that one there. <laughs> I had to say hi to everybody first, but what? Well, you know, <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> weird shit, man. We're talking about your toaster, and I said, can I pee in it? And then my son uh, pipes up with just this weird-ass thing. That's how you get a yeast infection. Yeah. So I had to I had to throw yeah, that in. Yeah, because I have been dying for my toaster since practically the end of June. And, yeah, no. You made me not want to use my toaster ever again. <laughs> That's the real original Toastmaster. Ew. <laughs> All right, so today you're giving me somebody that's actually close to where we live. Yep, another Oregonian. He literally killed somebody 10 minutes from my house. Yep, pretty much. Which is awesome. Well, it's not awesome that she's dead because that sucks. No, that sucks, but... But, um... I mean, think of it from our point of view. We are gory, macabre, you know, like that twisted kind of person. Oh, very much, very much. we're the type of people that actually stop and stare at a train wreck, so... (laughs) <laughs> this <You know>. is true. <laughs> so anyways, living in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we've grown accustomed to seeing dense forested areas all around us. And it's like even all year long, they're so beautiful to look at. However, many of them hide the secrets of horrific acts committed in their depths. Oregon's Malala Forest is no exception to that rule. I mean, we talked about it when we talked about um, John Arthur Aykroyd. Yeah, he and used Highway the, 20. Yeah, he used Highway 20 in the forested areas around there. Well, we have, we have, we have to say assumably because he is he was suspected before he died of Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. I personally think he did. I think he used it to rape and kill. I think there's more victims' bodies out there, but what do I know? Yeah, that's actually what I think as well. Yeah, he was a sick, sick dude. Yeah, no doubt, man. Good rinse to bad rubbish. Yeah, no doubt, yo. Even though he, he said he was treated... Cruel and inhumanely because he didn't get proper medical care. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. Whatever, dude. Um, So in the 1980s, it was the dumping grounds of one of Oregon's most prolific serial killers, a guy by the name of Dayton Leroy Rogers. When the authorities were investigating the murders, they learned some interesting things about the violent murderer whose bloodlust knew no bounds. That's a quote. And uh, they learned that he liked to disco and... uh little Saturday Night Fever, and that he loved his 8-track player. He was just well, trying to so stay alive. so did I. <laughs> just staying alive. Staying alive. <laughs> For instance, it was obvious that Rogers hunted his victims from the prostitutes that walked the streets of Portland. Now, I found some interesting things out here that I'll get to in a minute, but... Um, because I didn't move back to Oregon until 1993, and things were called different things after I moved back. So when the authorities were investigating, oh, said that already. Um, he was also a regular John, known for his kinky sexual desires, who liked to get the ball rolling with a neat screwdriver. No, not the tool, Scott. The heavy on the vodka, light on the orange juice screwdriver. Duh, of course I know that. For Christ's sakes, man. My, my bar is well stocked. I know, but you know, sometimes I think you go, the tool? <laughs> I got a tool. <laughs> <laughs> Did, it, did you ever get that TikTok video I sent you about the little kid? And the dad asked him for a screwdriver. The little kid goes, I drank all the orange juice this morning. No, I never got that. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so funny. <laughs> so that's not all law enforcement officials discovered about Rogers. It took some time, but they eventually came to the realization that they were looking at a serial sexual killer. A vicious man with no remorse for the lives that he took, despite what he tried to get others to believe later. Now, in the crimes of Dayton, Leroy Rogers came to the attention of the authorities in July of 1987, and it all started with a survivor. On July 7th, 1987, it was a typical hot summer day in Portland, Oregon, and 31-year-old Heather Brown um, had a fairly busy night the night before. She was a prostitute, and she worked her usual spot along Union Avenue, which, by the way, is now called Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Um, 
you know, every town has one, and it's usually, uh, unfortunately, it's usually associated with the seedy parts of town. <laughs> it still is. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. It's like every major town has one, and that is usually the seediest part of that par- that town. So during the time, that stretch of road catered to the pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers of the day. Even though there were other hookers out the night before, she was dressed in a very revealing skin-tight outfit, and she rarely had very little leg time between her customers. She had such a busy night that she wound up sleeping in until noon on that Tuesday morning, which is very unusual for her. So when she climbed out of bed, she realized she didn't have any cigarettes. So she decided, hey... I'll just keep the clothes on that I was wearing the night before, walk down to 7-Eleven, which is only a couple blocks away, and get some cigarettes, right? That works. Yeah, so she left her two small children at home with her roommate, and she took off walking. She was about halfway to 7-Eleven when she noticed a blue Nissan truck stop, and he offered to give her a ride. And she figured, you know what? I'm still in my outfit from last night. I might as well make a couple of bucks on my way to get some cigarettes, right? Always the worker. She accepted the ride and climbed inside, and he headed out of the city toward, a, toward the wooded area known was, that was well known as Malala Forest. He introduced himself as Steve and said that he was a professional gambler originally from Nevada. They drove along and at some point stopped at a convenience store so she could buy a pack of cigarettes and a Coke, and he purchased a six-pack of beer. Afterward, they got back in the vehicle and they continued to drive towards the wooded area when their conversation turned to business. He said that he was going to drive in the hills and he wanted someone to tie to tie someone up and, okay, I'm not going to say the word because we're trying to be clean, but he wanted to have nasty sex with them. Okay? Right. Well, we might want to give a reference of where Malala is compared to Union Avenue, Martin Luther King. That's about an hour or so drive. Yeah, it's about an hour east yeah, and it's, southish. It's not like you're going to go, hey, let's go around the corner. There's some driving involved with that. Yeah, pretty hefty. Yeah, because it's kind of east and south because it's kind of, you know, yeah. Right. Well, what got, what got me with him uh, when I was doing a little bit of research on him was where he was living. Where was he living? I in, can't remember. In Hubbard. I mean, oh, that's right. That's right. He lived in Hubbard. He stalked in Portland. Yeah, and, and then he killed used in Molala. In Molala. And uh, <laughs> it's Molala, no Layla, but okay. I just said what you said. I what you said. I said. <laughs> you said. I said. We said. <laughs> and that's what got me is that he's going way outside of well, and he was also. Did you get in there that he's he was a business owner? Not yet. I haven't gotten to all that yet. Sorry. Go ahead. Just talk about her. Anyways, so um, he drove. He moved to touch her thigh, but she pushed his hand away and demanded that he take her back to Portland. However, he refused and turned off onto a logging road where he sped up to about 40 miles per hour, which if you've ever been on one of our logging roads, that's not safe. You don't want to do that. In any vehicle, like not even yeah, in a bicycle, Yeah, our logging dude. roads are so rutted and washed out and narrow and, yeah, that going going more than 15, 20 is dangerous. Unless you're a log truck driver, they'll fly down them at 55 because they're psychotic and I'm pretty sure they're all on drugs. They, You know what? They probably are. I had a friend, I had a friend of mine, Tim. You want, hey, man, why don't you come drive for the company that I'm working for? They pay gray. Just come with me one day. Say, okay, that's cool, man. So we get to the top of the logging road. And uh, they, they put everything on. I helped him uh, throw the cables over it. And we cinched him down. And he comes flying off that damn hill. Oh, my gosh. Now, I wouldn't. Okay. I used to have a Mercedes. Okay. Yeah. And it was built for the Autobahn. It okay. It was fast. I wouldn't have taken it down this road if it was paved. Yeah. And he is flying down. I'm watching the back axle hang off the side of the cliff. And I'm white-knuckling it. And I tell you, man, I got religion really quick. <laughs> religion in a little bit of brown drawers? Uh, let's just say I couldn't wear those jeans or those boots or socks ever again. Ever again. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. And I looked at him and said, we're going to be passing by your yard. Drop me the hell off. No, because why? Because cause you, you have a mental problem. <laughs> you, have you have issues I did not know about. <laughs> 
So anyways, when he started to speed up, she bent over and grabbed her shoes off the floor because she was like, you know what? I'm going to make a break for it when the time's right. But he caught her looking at the handle of, her do- of the door and he reacted instantly. He swerved the pickup recklessly so that she would lose her sense of balance. And then he reached over, placing his hand over her chest to prevent her from actually jumping from the truck. At least he had a plan. Yeah, he then stepped on the accelerator and took the vehicle to over 60 miles an hour. Nearly out of her mind with fear, she struggled violently and managed to break free of his hold. Then in one swift move, she opened the door and jumped. I'm pretty sure she tucked and rolled because going that fast on logging road, you're probably going to get hurt. She was probably going, G.I. Joe. Right. He slowed <laughs> He slowed down a little bit, but noticed another log truck was close behind, so he kept going. When the logger rounded the curve, he saw Heather lying in the road and slammed on his brakes, barely missing her. Seeing that she was injured and grateful that he hadn't hit her, he helped her into the cab of his rig. One of her eyes was bleeding, in which he helped her to cover that, and then she had other scrapes and cuts as well. She told the logger that she had jumped out of a man's pickup because she feared he was going to kill her. Since she was obviously very shook up, he didn't ask her any more questions. Instead, he arranged to have her driven to a medical clinic in Malala, where it was determined that she suffered a concussion and multiple abrasions to her left temple area, right arm, and right hand. They reported the incident to the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department, and it was written up as case number 8720998. The incident report would become the first clue of the horror that was already well underway to veteran detective John Turner. Did you say horror or whore? Horror. I was going to say, we're already talking about horrors. I know, but I was saying horror. And I, and I use that word affectionately because we know, and if you've been listening to the, to the show for yes. any period of time, I am a big advocate of prostitutes. Not that I visit them. It's just that they get victimized uh-huh. so often. You know, that, uh, and it just doesn't seem like any, any law enforcement agency cares, except for Rochester, Rochester PD. New York. Yep. yep. They're the only ones who, who I've ever seen I mean, that, that, that care about Well, it, so. and I will say Dallas did back with the, with the, uh, uh, Charles, what's his name? The eyeball killer. Albright. Uh, Albright. Okay. I'll give, I'll give Dallas a pass. That. For that one of. time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, that cop had a hook book and everything. But every time we turn around and we look at anything from Rochester, New York, those boys are on it, man. You don't want to screw around. Yeah, because aren't they the ones that busted Shawcross? Yeah, they busted Shawcross because um, they, they were working the hooker beat. And there there was a couple other ones that we did from that area, too. Yeah, we also, well, we did the Spahalski brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they didn't realize Spahalski was a serial killer because he altered the crime scenes. Right, right, right. Yeah. So anyways, Detective John Turner was a 44-year-old distinguished-looking man, and they made a point of saying that he had Anglo-Saxon descent, which probably means he had those chiseled features. Like me. That made him look tough. Yeah, that's me, my finely chiseled features. Hang on a second. Make me look gorgeous. (sighs) I I don't see it, Pillsbury. Um, (laughs) Look, I'm Greek. That means that I am an Adonis. That's You're doughy. Like Philo. You are so messed up. Doughy and flaky. How like how you like that one? <laughs> okay, he had no way of knowing it yet, but there was an evil that was going to take its toll on Portland's streetwalkers, and they would, and that would eventually consume his life for much of the next two years. Evil. Yeah, and he. It also eventually led him to the most vicious and remorseless killer he had ever dealt with or would likely ever face again. So they say. So they, okay, you know, hold on. I, I wanna I wanna kinda stand up for him just a little. Who, Rogers? Yeah. Okay. Because maybe he d- did feel sorry for it afterwards. Maybe he had some remorse. We don't know. That's true. I'm not in his head. I'm not and I'm not condoning what he did because no. I know the I know the whole story with this one here because I actually researched it. Yourself? Myself. Yeah. Um but you know, he's older now. He's in his seventies. I mean, well, yeah, and I mean, granted, statistics do show that sociopaths and psychopaths cannot feel remorse. They say that if they do, it's a remorse over getting caught as opposed to the harm they did. 
Okay. However, at the same time, we also get into the mindset that people cannot change. You know what I mean? And that's that, that that's where I have a problem with it because yeah. Um, and I've asked this question several times before. Are you surprised I'm actually taking most of this seriously? I am. Um, God dang, my allergies must be wearing me out. Anyways, because <laughs> um, you're taking this seriously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. Okay. Are you the same person that you were in your twenties? Absolutely not. Are you the same person that you were in your thirties? Absolutely not. Are you the same person that you were last year? Now think about that hard. Have you changed at all in the last year? Of course I have. Everybody has. And it doesn't matter if you're a psychopath, a sociopath, if you have ADD, ADHD, MNOP, you know, TRSTUV, WXYNZ, or an STD, people <laughs> do change. People yeah, evolve. Usually they get an antibiotic for that, but okay. <laughs> but no, pe- people change. They, they, they evolve. Now, I'm not always saying it's for the good, sometimes it's for the ill. This is true. And we see that that's, that's very prevalent. Um, behavior when we're talking about um, okay, we just uh, I, I visited Keith Jesperson just a few Correct. days ago. Okay, he was an abused child. Yes, his dad was violent. Okay, so he he obviously didn't become a serial killer when he was five years old, no, or ten years old, or no. twelve years old, or thirteen or fourteen. This was later on in his life. That Correct. he became a serial killer. Wasn't it in the 90s? It was, in, I think, in the 90s or the 80s. 80s. And I think his first victim was in 1990. 1990. God damn it. No, no, it was, was it? actually, no, I remember this. It was my birthday in 1990. Oh, okay. Because remember it was when I researched it, I was like, oh my gosh, he killed his first victim on my birthday. Oh, well, there you go. Happy birthday to you. I know. That's but, what somebody else said. <laughs> but that's an evolution. Right. And we go from the first victim using a ligature and then his hands to, to finish her off. Right. To just his hands. Correct. We go from the strangulation to one that's outside the norm of tying the victim underneath his semi-truck. Yes. And dragging the body for like... A, 12 like miles. 12 miles. Mm-hmm. We go from these being hookers, these being, you know, prostitutes... To, to his fiance. To his fiance. Yes. So we see an evolution. So it's not always for the good, but it's not always for the bad. What if, what if, humor me. Devil's advocate, I know. I'm going to light a cigarette for this shit. Yes, I smoke. Mind your own damn business. (laughs) He gets enough of it from me. You, my doctor, my shrink. Everybody in your life, pretty much? Fucking girlfriend. Fucking everybody. Why do you smoke so much, Scott? I got to do with you people. I don't say why do you smoke so much. But I'll tell you what. At least I don't smoke crack. Bonus. Yeah. So. Side note. Side note. <laughs> or heroin. Side note. And I don't do heroin. Hang tight. Hey, can I get a shot of my vodka mix? Thank you. Sorry, we have to have the intern bring me booze. To I noticed they're really people. low. I was going to pick up some more tomorrow. That might be a good idea. Any hoosies, let's say... Do you have to ask me? Let's say, hypothetically, Dayton is, he's in his, he's in his late 60s, I think. I think he was born in 54. Um, but I can't quite remember. Um, yeah, I'll get to it in a minute. He's older and brain chemistry changes as well. Maybe he made the choice, the conscious effort, even if, I'm not saying he, he feels remorseful or anything like that. Right. Maybe he's changed his point of view. That could at be. Least. And I'm just on bare minimum stuff. And maybe he is telling himself, you know what? While I don't feel bad about it because I'm a sociopath, I know what I did was wrong. And I needed other outlets. And I think that is a sociopath. That's very much a sociopath. Yeah. But... um Everybody can change, you know, and I've, I, I put myself in the mix, too. I've changed drastically in the last 10 years. Right. Drastically, and mostly for the better. Okay, so right. well, and I always look so Carl at... Carl Let's refer back and, to know, Carl. Because he was the epitome of evil in his life, right? Yeah, he yeah went, exactly. Well, and it started out because he was, he was being victimized all the time, and he got tired of being a victim. So he changed to become the victimizer, right? 
Yeah, correct. It's, because he went from yeah, and, you know what? And he is a great example of an evolution. Mm-hmm. He went from a child with a mother and father. So right. you know the father's out there trying to trying to work at some point, and mom's taking care of the house. To dad going adios, I'm out of here. Right. To being hungry, to right. stealing food. Right. And uh, well, I'll put the revolver in there as well because somebody's going, he stole the gun too. Oh. Yeah, but he was a child, so I don't think he had intentions of using it. I think it was just, oh my gosh, look at the cool gun. So he goes from that, trying to eat, to going to a boy's home where he's victimized repeatedly by the yeah. staff members. By staff and other bigger kids, yes. And then he gets out of there and decides he's going to hop a freight train. To Cali, California, and he gets victimized by the hobos. Yes. So, yeah, his his evolution goes from victim to victimizer. Exactly. And it progressed into his, you know, raping boys. Right. And and raping men and killing and stealing. Right. And his wasn't a fetish. His was a control. 100% control. You know, and then, so let's go beyond that to after he's, I mean, because once he's in jail, he finally says, okay, I've killed all these people they didn't even know he was a serial killer until he told them and then he gets all this and he goes i want to die give me the death penalty and they're like no we're gonna give you life so he was like you know what i'll make them give me the death penalty because he knew that he would kill again exactly no matter if he was out or in or in prison exactly he it's gonna sound horrible but he resolved his problem exactly and keep in mind folks uh, he did what he knew to do to get the problem solved this is before Good medications. This is before psychotherapy and psychology right. was really even a true thing. I mean, there, there there was some basic Freudian concepts floating around. Yeah, but that would all led back to you wanting to have sex with your pretty parent. much. It's just that the, the, there was a rough. I don't know a, a rough. I'd, transition I, period. No ideology of what, oh, of yeah. what psychology should be. But, and then it was frowned upon if you even tried to get help psychologically. Right, exactly. So the the only the only way that he could stop himself right. was to die. And he exactly. knew that, but that was his whole evolution. Right. Here, I'm just saying that maybe Dayton is now he's in his late sixties, maybe he has realized what he did is truly wrong and truly right. sick. And uh you know, I, I just what he did was monstrous. Very. And at the time, he was a monster. Right. Well, and I mean, another reason why I wanted to feature this guy, too, is because people don't understand that I have a lot of adjacency to some of the serial killers here in Oregon. And I was actually, I actually knew one of his survivors. And I wish for the life of me I could remember her name. But I'll probably, I mean, it'll probably come to me as we're doing this. But anyways, um, like I said, because I'm adjacent to this one. I was adjacent to Baroni. I'm adjacent to Jesperson. It's just I'm adjacent to a lot of crime. Oh, see, and Je- Jesperson's another good example. Mm-hmm. What he did was monstrous. Exactly. However, however. He does not hold it back that he did wrong. He's not a monster. Yeah. He's not. That's that. That's he, what I'm getting at with him. Is right. What what some and I might be wrong. Maybe Dayton is sitting in prison right now, sitting there going, "God, I just want to kill women and rape them and 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 chop them up." Type of thing. I could be wrong. I'm just yeah. We I'm could just be playing devil's advocate. Yeah, that's all I'm doing, well, folks. So, but so don't, don't don't send me hate mail. Tell me how much you hate me, and you know. No, like, but I think what a lot of people don't realize, and I've seen this, and I'll throw out her name, Catherine Ramsland. She's a psychiatrist out there. She is one that, I mean, she's the one that you and I both looked at her when we saw the documentary on Pandrum and go, what? (laughs) Because she was like, oh, he was a psychopath with no remorse and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but you didn't take into his whole life. Exactly. Into into consideration here. And that's what I take into consideration when we're doing our research. Me too. the, The catalyst to it. Now, some don't have a catalyst. Like, let's take everybody's favorite, Ted Bundy. Uh, yeah, he really had no catalyst except for he wanted control. He was just an asshole. Yeah. Pardon, I'm trying not to cuss. Damn it. Well, that's not as bad as some of the other words we've <laughs> that's used. That's true. But no, he, he was just, he was mentally unstable. He was just literally born bad. Yeah. But, you know, you have others that, uh, I believe in evolution. Right. And you and I have both said, too, that, I mean, 
for lack of a better phrase, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, because there's probably a good chance we could have been that way. Uh, yeah, brought that up in other in other uh, yeah in a, other, other episodes. episodes. I am by nature a very violent man. Right, very, me too. Because I I grew up in a state of violence, and I've done very violent things in my life. Yes. Very very violent things, um, of which we won't mention on the show. My theory holds true. <laughs> I have no comment to that, but <laughs> it's a, that's an inside joke, people. So I now take a different path to deal with my violence most of the time. Like, I'm not physically violent anymore. Do I raise my voice? Yes, I do. Can I be a dick? Of course I can. Yes, you can. Do I get angry? Yeah, I of do. Of course you do. And anybody... I learned this when I, when I was in... Uh, I learned it in psychology classes when I was in college, but I also learned it when I was taking anger management classes. It's okay to be mad. It's the choices you make while you're angry. Right. And I just make better. I make better choices now. That's the bottom line. And that's it. That's my personal evolution. So I just I always wonder with each person that we do if there was an evolution towards goodness, except for Carla Hamalka. Yeah, let's not let's not give her. She gets no pass. No, there was no explaining what she did. Anyway, carry on. I got okay. the package up a letter. So, anyways, it's been said though that bloodlust is an aberration that is unique to humans specifically and that when it occurs it doesn't it does so without a purpose and has no reverence for the normal needs and that are you know um that are intrinsic to humankind survival right the aberration is not necessary for us to survive however for what it really is it's clearly a sexual violence and most of it is all evil and it rears its diabolic head when its host fails to achieve some sort of sexual gratification in any other form. Okay? So as a result, many, particularly children and women, are the victims of people who have that, des- have that need or that desire. Because they're, they're, they're the easiest target. Right, because they're the most vulnerable. While not all... Like, <laughs> while serial killers aren't always men... Right. Women do take up a very small portion of that. It's mostly men. And True. from what I have found is most men that are serial killers, they're not going... It's a target of opportunity. Right. At the, at the end of the day, that's what it is. Now, taking aside a person's victim profile that they, that they hunt for and things like that, it's really about opportunity. So let's say that you're looking at a woman named Linda and she is a bodybuilder. Right. This woman benches 250. Boom. She's big. Are you going to attack her and take her out? Hell no. No. For a couple of reasons. Number one, all of her buddies at the gym are going to notice that Linda's missing. Two, she's probably in a relationship, so her, her partner's going to know she's missing. Right. There's going to be people who notice. However, when you're looking at hookers, and I've said it before, hookers and homeless people, and I, and I hate the homeless here. I hate them. I hate him with a fervor. Only a because of what we've seen them do. Right. But I don't, I don't think that they should die unless I can set them on fire. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that's, but they have a chance of rolling around. That's Stop dropping and rolling. Jiminy Christmas. You're talking about setting people on fire. What the hell's wrong with you? Don't listen to him, folks. He's, a ba- he's an a-hole. That's what he is. <laughs> See, I didn't cuss or her. anything, Scott. I didn't cuss. But you, you're an a-hole. <laughs> I sit here all day long in your head. And I hear, boys and girls, I hear the horrible things he says. <laughs> I love her. He's terrible. He, he sits there and he, he's like, F this person, F that person. Look at this moron driving. And I try to pluck my ears and just, I just want to knit. That's all I want to do. And, and all I hear is his voice. It's terrible. <laughs> I swear to God, Tammy, listen to me. I swear to God. Is it terrible? I'm going to kill myself through alcoholism. Or heroin. <laughs> if I could get heroin in here, Tammy, I've the talked. The heroines. <laughs> I've talked to the black people. <laughs> they can't even get me the heroines. They can't get you the heroines. I just don't want to be in his head anymore. <laughs> it's terrible in here. It's terrible. People don't understand she's real. <laughs> here he is knocking on my door. And then he says, hey, look at this guy in the Toyota F. This guy, he looks like he looks like he's a pole smoker. <laughs> I don't need to hear that. 
Okay. I've, okay. I've said my piece. Carry okay. on. Just go back. Carry go on. back to your room. I'm You'll be all right. Back to my room. I gotta cry. <laughs> so. I need to smoke a cigarette and try to find the heroin. <laughs> so, anyways, Dayton was Dayton Leroy Rogers was approximately thirty three years old when this lust like hit its peak, and um, he was also known amongst Oregon's prostitutes as Steve. The gambler, and he had been inflicted by bloodlust since his late teens, though, perhaps maybe even longer. It usually materialized in the form he would get these headaches, and he said he would say that they were splitting, blinding headaches, and perhaps he was always subconsciously aware that only at the sight of another person's pain. The, in the sound that they made when they were in anguish or ultimately the blood that poured from them that relieved that suffering that was within him. So when the headaches began, the only way to make them go away was to let his dark, eh, I'm going to say it like this, like Dexter says, his dark passenger emerge. I had a feeling you're going to go with that. Did that you is, really? That I have, okay, I love that expression because I use that on myself. But I also want to share with everybody. So <laughs> I'm talking to my buddy Lynn today. This is totally off topic. And he gave me a great saying that I'm going to use more often. Y'all, y'all ready? Let's do this. He said, you know, they say the grass is greener on the other side. And if it's not greener, I know how to grow grass. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, hey, if it's not greener, make it greener, dude. That's right. So he also seemed personal enough on the surface. He... As long as he wasn't in the midst of one of those violent mood swings. He was well known in small communities of Woodburn and Canby, which Woodburn really isn't a small community anymore. But Canby still is. And people seemed to like him. He was a mechanic, which was a skill he had learned in prison. And he ran a small, successful engine repair business. He was married and he had an 18-month-old child, a little boy who was... They say it's his spitting image. He ran it with his father-in-law, by the way. Oh, really? Yep. No. Oh, see, and you used to have a mechanic shop, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I've owned many businesses. I've owned a concrete company. I've owned a mechanics uh, repair shop. Um, I've owned a few tech companies. Good things. Yeah. So few people around that knew him ever saw the evil that laid beneath him. And many of those who were unlucky enough to witness that dark side did not live to talk about it. Except for Darth Vader. He was all about the dark side. Is he Dayton's father? Dayton, I am your father. Dayton, I am your father. (laughs) No! (laughs) So, apparently his headaches seemed to get worse and worse sometime in the summer of 1987. And that was why he was away from home so much. He claimed that he was working at a shop during those long absences, which ranged from a few hours to all night. And his wife, named Sherry, saw little reason to doubt him. When she would call to check up on him in the early evening, he usually answered the phone. On the occasions that he didn't, he always told her a valid excuse. He would explain that he had been in the middle of a project and didn't want to leave to pick up the phone. Or he would tell her that he had gone out to get some coffee, perhaps a bite to eat. Anything that would convince her he was only taking a break to get away from the shop for a short period of time. However, more often than not, he waited until it was very late, until he was certain she was in bed and fast asleep before he began his hunting. Now, his, his working soon became late. His working late seemed to become... Soon became a routine. There we go. I can speak. It was a way of life. And her phone calls became less frequent because she knew where he was going to be. So why call him? Right? So although she began to hear stories about him frequenting local taverns and bars, she tried to maintain the faith that she had always had in him. She might have become suspicious of him sooner if only she had taken the trouble to check the mileage on his pickup truck. What but, woman does that? No, no, I like, know, for right? Real. No, like for real. like, oh, I'm I'm a suspicious mother humper yeah. hump. Yeah, that's the word I'm going to go for. Yeah, hey, you caught myself. yourself. <laughs> I, I I caught myself. I'm good. I'm a suspicious person. Okay, so let's say that I think that my girlfriend, if she drove because she doesn't drive, was cheating on me. I'm not going to go out and 
freaking check her mileage. You go, right. okay, from her house to her work is like this many miles, and then she right. drove here. And that's, that's stupid. Yeah, nobody really thinks that, right? Okay, even even pipe up with, with you know with, with somebody saying you know she would have known had she had checked his mileage, and probably so if she did some basic math. But right. who goes out there and checks the mileage? Because it, it is a ton of miles. I'm, I'll admit that because you're driving from, he was, I think he was living in Hubbard. At least that's where his shop was, I think, if I'm remembering right. Well, if he was well known in Camby and Woodburn, that's kind of that area. Right, so. it's that area. So then he's driving out to, uh, to, to Hookerland down Union Avenue, MLK. Right, which is the heart of Northeast Portland. Right, to drive up to Malala Forest. Mm hmm. Out there, Molala, and then driving back to his shop or home, that's a ton of mileage. Right. Well, what they say is that in one single week, he drove more than most people do- did in a month. I believe it, man. I do, too, because that's quite a lot of haul. I bet you gas wasn't expensive like it is now. <laughs> you think that that's stopping plenty of cereal? No, that was that way right back now. then when it was less than, what, 50 cents a gallon? Tell you what, man. The... I thought about serial killing here recently. Until you looked at the gas prices? Uh, the gas prices. And, well, that ain't going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> not on I my mean, watch. Here I am. I got to pick up somebody. Then I got to drive them out to a forest. <laughs> and then I got to kill them. Then I have to have my, my, my truck detailed out. Then I got to bury them, of course. So that way there nobody can find the body. And then I've got to drive all the way back. That's the half a tank. At, at least. I can't do that. Yeah. That's that's an expensive killing right there. I just filled my tank up at low gas prices before they went up again. It was 145 bucks. Yeah. I'm <laughs> telling you. So on August 6th, it was a typical day for the Rogers family. He got up early, showered, shaved, ate a light breakfast, and drove to his shop in Woodburn before 8 a.m. Outwardly, he seemed happy. Business had picked up during the summer to the point where he had to hire a man to help him, and several new repairs orders had been coming in every day. However, he began to feel the pressures of the backlog despite his new help, and his headaches became more frequent, as did his nocturnal habits. At times, she found her, Sherry, his wife, found herself wondering what had actually come over her husband, seeing him sitting quietly and staring into space, but she had never said anything to him. Even though she had heard rumors about him, you know, frequenting bars and she secretly feared that he might have been actually seeing another woman, she convinced herself that the pressures from his business had become too great and she didn't want to do or say anything that might add to his growing troubles. Right? It wasn't until that afternoon that a pounding inside Dayton's head became more than he could bear. He had to do something to stop this headache. He left his assistant in charge of the shop and drove to a liquor store in North Park Plaza in Woodburn, where he purchased a 10-pack of Smirnoff Vodka Miniatures to replace the depleted stock he normally kept behind the seat in his truck. I got way better vodka for you there, uh, Dayton. I know, right? Smirnoff? Yeah, Smirnoff's kind of low-end. Go Stolies. Yeah, well. At least, at least Stolies. Well, Amsterdam's not bad either, but. Okay, no, I'd do Amsterdam or Grey Goose. Yeah. So, anyways, he also purchased a couple of bottles of orange juice, the type that with the disposable plastic that he liked so much. And he drank one of his crudely mixed screwdrivers quickly, and the headache subsided a little bit. However, after that, he returned to his shop and waited, thinking the planning the rest of the night. He needed something more effective than his alcohol. The remedies he knew were effective were out in the numbers on street on Portland streets. His for the taking. And a $50 bill. Damn, that's expensive back in that day. You would know. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) In the 80s, Scott, I wasn't even really, I was only, what, 5'10"? Damn, you started early. Um, So what did you do? Like charge the boys in town like a a, a fucking gumdrop and a lollipop? I was 12 years old in 1987. Oh, okay. So you're charging two lollipops. Okay. I hate you. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're, it's a quarter. Yeah, considering how easy it had been with all his other victims, there was pretty much no stopping him. At 8.30 that night, he drove home where he had dinner with Sherry and his son. He explained to them that he had to return to the shop and work very late, perhaps not returning till the early morning hours to catch a little bit, to catch up on some of the overdue work that was at the shop. She wasn't 
Now, Sherry was an attractive, curly-haired silver brunette at 5 feet 4 inches tall. She only weighed approximately 120 pounds, and she was 3 years younger than Dayton. So she didn't protest when he said this, right? She never did. She was, I guess what you would call the subservient wife. And we talked about that with Brutus. You know how his wife saw things that were clearly disturbing, but she ignored them? As she should be. What, be subservient? Damn right. It all, it all started when we gave women the right to vote. Is that when this started? That's what it was, man. <laughs> and then they just took it from there. Then they're I'm voting, you. and they're lipping off and not making dinner, and pretty soon the dog wants to bite your leg and pee on you, and they're like, don't kick my chihuahua. And you're like, woman, I didn't want a chihuahua in the first place. That's not even a real dog. That's a, that's a snack food for real dogs. And yeah, okay, so... <laughs> I bet you our new listeners, because we picked up some guards and everything. Uh, yeah, the guards at prison are thinking, wait till he comes in next time. They're, they're sitting there we're going. Gonna, we're going to do more and pat him down. They're sitting there going, hey, guard Rodriguez. I didn't think he was that kind of a guy. I mean, he's talking total smack about women. I'm just kidding, guys. I, I believe that everybody should have equal rights. Like, yeah. Seriously, straight across the board. Straight across the board, man. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not really a male chauvinist. No. or anything like that. Right this minute. <laughs> I, I'm only that way to you. But oh, then, but okay. You, but you're not even in the species. You're a Sasquatch. Oh, ouch. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I can't say you're a Sasquatch. I don't see any laws about Sasquatch rights except for in Washington itself that says that basically I can't shoot you. No, you cannot disparage me or harass me. Ah, damn it. There's always something. There is. I call my lawyers. <laughs> They're a loophole somewhere. The, there's going to be problems. I, can, I feel it. I feel it. I feel so it in my bones. anyways, about a half hour after they had dinner, Dayton was gone. He went back to his shop, had some more mixed drinks, and he actually did work on some of his repair projects. And then shortly after midnight, he changed into what he called his stepping out clothes and that, that he kept in a special location in his shop. And then he waited around a little bit longer to make sure that his wife had most likely gone to bed. Then, at around 12.30 a.m., he was out heading towards Portland. On August 7, 1987, by approximately 1 a.m., Steve the Gambler was back on Union Avenue, which was known as Portland's Prostitute Row, looking for some, for lack of a better phrase, kinky action. After a short cruise down the street, he stopped a blonde near the corner of Northeast Union and Wygant Street. Hey, I know exactly where that's at. I know you do because you work that area. But here's my bigger question. Like, and, and there's something that seriously on, on a series that, that just popped I, I'm wondering, because we do so many kinky killers, if any of them have ever gone to their spouse or their partner. And said, I want to try this? Yeah, I want to try this. I'm not saying, like, Dayton cutting up his wife or anything like that. But at least let's Well, like the we do know that Brutus tried cross-dressing in front of his wife, and she, like, Looked at him in disgust and said, what the hell are you doing? Remember? Oh, yeah. No, the, the, there was that. There was that. So Be supportive of your partner, man. Like, seriously, everybody's got their weird kinky thing that they have. You know? What? Not Bill. Yeah, Bill, too. Bill likes it when he gets punched in the face by his wife and then she pees on him. But, <laughs> but, but he's such a quiet guy. He's a deacon in his church. That's why. That's why. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> why. But he's a Catholic. That's double why and watch the children. <laughs> Just saying. That was Scott's PSA for the day. So anyways, he actually recognized her because she he had picked her up bef- earlier that year during the Rose Festival. She was somewhat larger for a woman, for, you know, the normal prostitute. But from a distance, she appeared rather attractive. He knew, She knew how to dress and held her weight well. He pulled over, invited her inside, and recognizing him as a former customer she didn't hesitate no one except for the john knows the precise details of what happened between the couple from 1 to 3 a.m but at some point before 3 they pulled into a parking lot of denny's restaurant on the six on at on the 16,200 block of southeast mclaughlin boulevard in oak grove i know exactly where that one's at too wait a minute I'm no, that's Laughlin? not the one. Yeah, that one's not the one off of um, MLK. No, that's not the one off MLK okay, over there by the Lloyd Center. It's the one that's down there towards um, Gladstone area. Right, right. I'm just trying to think. There's a Denny's off of McLaughlin? Well, there used to be. Yeah, I don't know if it's still there. I don't I, God, No, because the only two that I know of 
three, I'm sorry, is I know the one that's by the Lloyd Center. Yeah, the one, one here at Jansen, Jansen Beach. Beach. And then there's one in Southeast uh, in Happy Valley. There's two in Happy Valley. Get the hell out, really? Yeah, there's one over in the old 82nd, too. Oh. Well, yeah. I'll be damned. So anyways, um, when the taverns and bars having were just closed, the business there, obviously, was had picked up. Because if you don't go to a Sherry's... After you get done drinking, you go to a Denny's, right? Or Waffle House, but they don't have those here. When you're touring with your with your band, yeah. When when you're here, uh, this side of the Mason Dixon, you yeah. go to you go to Denny's. Yep, Denny's or Sherry's, yeah. And well, Sherry's is basically only here. Yeah, that's true. And if you're east of the Mason Dixon, you go to Waffle House. Where you're afraid to put your silverware on the table, but you eat the food anyways. And you could get stabbed. It's wonderful. <laughs> and it might be by somebody who works there. You yeah. don't know. It's good times. Anyways, a guy by the name of Michael Fielding, who was 32 years old and lived in an apartment close by, he had gone to bed a couple of hours before and was sleeping when he suddenly heard a woman scream in intense pain. He heard her say, help me, help me, please help me, rape, I'm being raped. Now, as he climbed out of bed and headed for the window that overlooked the parking lot, the screams became louder. They were no longer muffled. He arrived at the window in time to see a man run beneath a streetlight. A few moments before that, James Dalkey, who was 53 years old, had just arrived at Denny's. He was alone when he parked his 83 Ford van and Chomo van and started walking toward the restaurant. He heard a woman yelling and screaming but couldn't quite make out what she was saying. But he could see two human forms in the parking lot in the direction from which the streams were coming. Although it was dark, he could still see two people, a man and a woman, who appeared to be struggling with each other. After his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he could not believe what he saw. Near the middle of the parking lot was a completely naked woman, and a man was kneeling over her. I mean, he could not but this donkey guy couldn't determine why he was. And that's a waste of a perfectly good white girl. Right? Then Charles Gates, a handicapped customer, had also just arrived and barely situated himself in his wheelchair when he heard the screams. He was already outside in the parking lot and he was on his way over to the woman, as was Dalkey, when the man kneeling over her saw them and he jumped to his feet and ran in the other direction. Hang tight, hang tight. The disabled dude... Was that the one where that chick got stabbed? Well, I think we're getting there. In the parking lot of the Denny's. You said the one on McLaughlin. The Denny's on McLaughlin, yes. This was at the Denny's that was by Lloyd Center. Are you sure? Because, I mean, according to the reports I, I read, it was this one on oh, McLaughlin. Oh, okay. I might be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think you might have the wrong Denny's in mind, period. Oh, might be, yeah. Yeah. Because this is what he says. Gates, the guy in the wheelchair, was the one that arrived first. And he said, my God, he slit her throat. Okay? So he actually got from his wheelchair. And he, um, because he was experienced in both first aid and emergency medical treatments. And he noticed that she wasn't breathing and didn't respond to questions. So when he found no carotid pulse and he wasn't even phased by the blood, he began CPR and mouth to mouth. Um, as the crowd gathered, Dalkey instructed the restaurant workers to call for medical and police help. He then returned to the parking lot only to discover Gates's attempts had not uh, revived the woman. He could see why the woman was covered with blood and multiple stab wounds. So, yeah, it's the same one. Oh, all right. My bad. Yeah, I think you just have the wrong Denny's in mind because we were talking about that one on MLK. Um... And then apparently, a couple of minutes later, Dalkey again spotted the man he'd only seen moments before kneeling over the victim. And he was coming around the side of the building and he was headed for a small foreign pickup truck nearby. And someone shouted, that's him. That's the son of a mother. You know, insert blank here. Um, by that time, two more bystanders, a guy by the name of San Connor and Richard Burgio, had rushed over to see what was happening. When they learned of what ha- of the incident, they ran to their own vehicles. They attempted to block off the exit of the parking lot, but the man with the pickup drove out over the sidewalk. Burju was determined not to let the guy get away, so he sped off after him in hot pursuit. 
which was by now heading south on McLaughlin Boulevard towards Gladstone. So he chased the pickup through Oak Grove and into Gladstone. At times, their speed reached over 100 miles an hour. Then he, he got close enough to copy down the license plate number. Satisfied that he'd actually done all he could, he gave up the chase because it was getting dangerous and returned to the crime scene where he found a team of officers and a rescue team from the Oak Lodge Fire Department. The rescuers also tried to revive the woman, but were unsuccessful. A short time later, she was loaded into an ambulance and taken to Emanuel Hospital in Portland, which I'm surprised they didn't life flight her from where she was. Right, right, right. Where she was pronounced dead on arrival. Because the Emanuel that they're talking about is clear over here by the Vancouver border. Yeah, I was going to say, you can see it right from uh, the 405. Yeah, it's very, very, like, yeah. Meanwhile, several deputies rounded up witnesses and took a statement. Six of those interviewed said they'd heard the woman scream for at least two minutes before her body was found. One of them told the deputies how the woman's screams had woke him up. It had sounded as though her screams had come from inside a closed vehicle through the glass at first because her shrieks were muffled. She was obviously in pain and had cried out that she was being raped. When he got to the window, though, all he saw was the man running underneath the spot, the streetlight. It was like a spotlight, he said. If he hadn't run underneath it, I wouldn't have seen anything. He, do- he told the deputies that he'd gotten a good look at the man and that he could likely recognize him in a lineup. Deputies found several articles of clothing not far from where the victim had been. And the- they believed that clothing was hers, included some blue jeans, a hooded blue sweatshirt with white trim and a single tennis shoe. But the deputies wondered, where was the other shoe? Right? Don't say it. They're just waiting for the other shoe to drop? Yeah, I was waiting yep. for that. So they also found no ide- identification, either on the clothing or in the parking lot. But after additional searching, they found a double-length pair of shoelaces tied together with loops on both ends, prompting some to speculate that she had been hogtied at some point. A short time after that, Clackamas County detectives, detectives John Turner and Mike Machado, like that name, arrived at this crime scene. After being briefed on what had happened, Turner took the license plate number, which was Oregon CYW194, probably one of those old orange plates, provided by Richard Burgio, and ran it through the Oregon State Department of Motor Vehicles. A few minutes later, Turner learned that the pickup was registered to a guy by the name of Dayton Leroy Rogers, whose address was listed in the 10,500 block of South Hines Road in Canby, about 20 miles from the crime scene. Um, Turner and a team of deputies went to Rogers' home at approximately 5 a.m. They saw no sign of the pickup on the property, and they were told by a relative that Rogers was not home, but could likely be found in his repair shop on Pacific Court in Woodburn, which was a few miles south of Canby. The relative told the sleuths that Roger sometimes worked odd hours at the shop. At about 5.35 a.m., Turner arrived at the shop, and after a glance around, he knocked on the door of the shop until a man with bloodshot eyes answered. The guy smelled of alcohol, and he identified himself as Dayton Rogers. After Turner told Rogers what he and the deputies were there for, Rogers allowed them to come inside. Although Turner noted that Rogers' pupils were dilated, he observed that the man had no difficulty walking and his speech was not slurred. So he obviously wasn't that drunk. He also, that prompted him to conclude that Rogers had been drinking, but wasn't obliterately drunk like he tried to make it seem, right? He probably rubbed his eyes a lot to make him redder, right? So when asked, Rogers told the detective that he'd been at the shop all night and had been drinking bourbon and strawberry mixer. Ew. And then Turner said, can I look around? Rogers said, go ahead and search the place. Search the truck, too, if you want to. Rogers told the detective that his pickup had been at the shop all night, and Turner shot him a dubious glance and walked over to the truck and raised the hood. Then he goes, been here all night, huh? You haven't gone out at all? And Rogers or somebody had recently run the engine hard, thought Turner, as he pulled his hand away from a hot engine. Right? Hello. Clue number one. What happened to your hand, asked Turner. Did you cut yourself? Rogers explained that he'd been using a hacksaw a few hours before when it suddenly slipped and cut him. 
He asked if he had left the shop for first aid. He responded he'd gone to Willamette Falls Hospital in Oregon City that same morning to have the wound treated. So he had left the shop, Turner said, and he'd also wondered why the man had initially lied about it. If he didn't have anything to hide, why was he acting so suspicious? There was no doubt that Roger's pickup was the one seen fleeing the scene. It matched the appearance and the license plate. Because of that and his sub his suspicious demeanor, he was arrested a few minutes later and taken to Clackamas County Jail. Meanwhile, the detectives identified the dead woman as 25-year-old Jennifer Lisa Smith. She was a mother of two, and her last known address was one block of North Alabina Avenue in Portland, um, not far from Union Avenue. It's actually like maybe six blocks. Additional background. Additional background. Of course I do, because I have an ex-boyfriend whose sister lived on Alpine. Oh, yeah. That's what we're calling him now. Okay. Anyways. Additional background on Smith revealed that she had an arrest record for prostitution and also indecent exposure. Now, I'm almost done here. Um, background on Rogers revealed that he was no stranger to law enforcement as well. In 72, when he was 18, he picked up a 15-year-old girl who had been hitchhiking in Eugene, and he convinced her to go to a remote area to have sex with him. Um, risking a charge of statutory rape, Rogers picked the girl up again a few days later, and they went together to a park to gather wood to make whistles for neighborhood kids, but he took her into a wooded area and again had sex with her. After lying down on the ground, Rogers leaned over as if to kiss her. Instead, he stabbed her in the abdomen with a hunting knife. After pulling the knife from her stomach, the girl, bleeding profusely and in pain, convinced him to take her to a hospital. She survived and later told the cops about the attack. And he, on February 13, 1973, he pled guilty to second-degree assault and was placed on four years probation. Less than six months after that, Rogers assaulted two more 15-year-old girls with a soft drink bottle. Although only charged with one count each of second- and third-degree assault, he was found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. And he was sent to the Oregon State Hospital by Lane County, which we all know is damaged, which is closed now, and Judge Helen, by Judge Helen Fry. And he was released from the hospital on December 12, 1974. These two incidents prompted Larry Larson of Lane County to write an after-sentence report on Rogers. And he said, quote, This man is an extreme danger to the community, particularly to young women. He is both sexually and physically violent and, without question, is a murder case looking for a place to happen. So he, he pretty much nailed it, right? In January of 76, he was also indicted on a charge of first-degree rape in Clackamas County, but he was eventually acquitted of that charge as well. In February of 1976, however, Clackamas County rape charge was still pending. He picked up two Kaiser Oregon High School girls and at knife point allegedly raped one and threatened to rape the other, which for those who don't know, Kaiser is just north of Salem, right? Right. Yeah, I had to think for a minute. According to John Collins, a Yamhill County District Attorney, the two girls had skipped school and were walking down a street in Kaiser when he saw them and convinced them to get in his vehicle. He was a good talker, and his method at the time was to pick up girls, particularly blonde ones. They got into a car with him, and they went to get some beer. After drinking beer and smoking some pot, Rogers took a paring knife from the glove box of the car he was driving and threatened the girls. He used coat hanger to bind their wrists and ankles. Afterward, though, he apologized and pretended like it was all some kind of a game to him. Nonetheless, he was indicted on charges of rape and coercion. He pled not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, and he was convicted only on the coercion charge and received a maximum five-year prison term. This was in, in a less enlightened time, said Collins, when juries often felt that if a woman or girl contributed to the rape in any way, they would not convict him. In this case, I think it was because they drank beer and smoked marijuana. Wait a minute. How were they dressed? It doesn't say. They, we, we should know that because they, depending on how they were dressed, they, they could have been asking for it. I know. That was back in that day, right? Yeah. That's exactly why I made the yeah. reference. I mean, it doesn't say. It does say that they had skipped school and were walking down the road. So possibly school clothes. But, you know, mm, don't even say what I'm thinking clothes. you were going to. That's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. 
So anyways, as the detectives probe even deeper into his background. Probing schoolgirls. Gotcha. Into Dayton's background. Oh, probing Dayton. They learned like that, that he had been in and out of jail for numerous reasons, including parole and probation violations, and for kidnapping a local prostitute. All in all, they learned that he had spent 27 months in Oregon prison already, and his parole was formally terminated in January of 1983. So, this is all him working up to the murders in 87. See, it's it's an evolution. It is. It is an ultimate evolution. Yes. But there, that's the end of part one. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation. We should pop right up. You get the full story without any of my BS. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Check out the website at www.twistedbluellc.com. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this on anybody else's podcast, or lying. Steven Bastards. We'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.